It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello and welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I've got George Belshaw, our resident writer and broadcaster, and of course, tennis coach Calvin Beton here with me. Uh, We're back so soon. Having delayed last week's podcast, we are back on schedule this time around uh, with... um... Sorry, my dog's just started eating the loudest chew he could possibly find. It's made of yak's milk, and I cannot tell you how loud it is. Hopefully you can't hear it at home, but Buzz the Greyhound is increasingly uh, taking up more and more of my time. I think basically since I got back from Australia, he's making me feel guilty. Um, George, you've just been talking about Aston Villa Man United, which is not even the most important sporting fixture of yesterday. Mm. Did you not stay up all night and watch the Super Bowl? I did not. I I went to bed in a bit of a grump yesterday, to be honest. I was uh, not very pleased. It was, Scott um, McTominay inflicted grump, was it? <laughs> yeah, and and to cap it all off, I'm just very under the cosh at work at the minute, and and we had a bad injury for Villa today as well, off the result of that game, so I'm just I'm just gloriously grumpy, James. I'm really... I thought you were going to say you had a bad injury at work. I was like, oh, no, George, no. You, you work in like the Department of Health, there's bad injuries everywhere, it's kind of the, the, the sort of occupational hazard. Yeah. My, my, I'll probably jinx this right now for next week, but I'm in great physical shape at the moment, James. It's remarkable. No ailments. I ran a 10K on Sunday, cheeky 47 minutes. Yeah, like, honestly, George. So, like, I'm in training for a half marathon at the moment. I did my longest run of my training so far on Sunday. Got home, opened up Instagram to see you doing that. It's on a running machine, though, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, on a running machine is much easier and doesn't count. It is easier. I live on top of a hill, bloody hard. Calvin, what's your injury status at the moment? You've usually got a torn calf. No, fully fit. Fully fit, raring to go. Cracky. I was actually just thinking before we came on that, I wouldn't mind trying to get range of game of paddle. I've not played in about 18 months. But, because I've had a bad shoulder we'll play injury, with you, Calvin. I'm fully fit now. Mm. Excellent. Um, well, it, look, that sounds like an open invitation, Calvin. If you're in the Barnsley area and you need a paddle partner, Calvin Beton is occasionally in the country. Well, it, it would more be uh, Leeds. And, and we don't have any. We don't have any paddle courts in Barnsley. Although we are getting some in April, apparently. I was going to say, there's so much. I was talking to the head of paddle. I don't know how all of a sudden we're. So there's going to be people at home who are like, "Shut up about paddle! All I ever hear about is paddle, uh, or padel as they call it on the continent." But I mean, I was talking to the guy who runs paddle in the UK, and uh, like. Uh, he, he's just there's so many ways to build courts at the moment there's grants and there's loans and there's like so much help they're absolutely mad for it and i was actually watching doha today and i see they've got paddle courts on the site where the the tennis center is which is um quite impressive 
Um, we're going to talk about some actual tennis today. Sorry for talking about nonsense squash with sort of foam brackets, which I, I have to say, Calvin, I didn't think you'd be a paddle guy. I'm quite surprised. I quite enjoy it. I mean, I've only played two or three times, actually. But I, I started playing like, I had two or three games, uh, sort of autumn 2022, and then mm. got this shoulder injury, so couldn't really do any. I mean, I've not really been able to feed properly at tennis for, for a year. I can do like forehands. But other than that, um, but yeah, I quite enjoyed it when I played it. I don't really understand George, why it's, George. I don't really understand why the LTA have taken it as part of it. Well, I do know, uh, which is too boring to go into now, but. Well, I mean, or just money. Like, well, it's not money, money, it's something it, to do but... with, well, I mean, I'll sort of go into it. It's something to do with, like, they found out that they, they, they needed to increase their female engagement figures. And they found out that in, in Spain, a lot of females play paddle. So they basically brought bought the paddle sport. They took that under their wing on the basis mm. that there must be a lot of females play in Britain as well. And then they can claim that they've got a lot of females playing tennis because tennis and paddle now go in the same pool. Right. Okay. Interesting. Rather than maybe just trying to dig in. Rather than just trying to get more females to play tennis, we'll maybe able to dig into that a little bit, uh, a little bit more. Um, George, I assume you've played paddle. Yeah, George I've is played... getting disturbed by flatmates, right? <laughs> yeah, I've um, I've played once, I think. Uh, okay. It's a good sport, though. Yeah, I think much preferred to pickleball. Andy Murray's for uh, I think now potentially former agent um, was trying to get me down to play some the other day. So it's it's it's, it's infecting every corner of, of tennis. I can assure people of that. Um, right, thank you to everyone who's been in touch over the last um, few days and weeks uh, saying how much they've enjoyed the pod. Uh, we had record numbers again over the Australian Open. Um, I know that um, our overlords at the Sports Social Podcast Network were very pleased and excited. And uh, we, were all, we were rewarded with a second place in the Sports Podcast Awards. Thank you to everyone who voted in that. Uh, congratulations to Dan Kiernan, who once again beat us to top spot. Uh, we will get you one year, Kino. Don't worry about that. That doesn't. That sounded much more ominous than it's supposed to. We'll, we'll just we'll just overtake him in the award. We're not going to like have him taken out. Um, right. Let, let's move on before I get myself in trouble and somehow threaten to kill someone. Um, we've had loads of people in uh, in touch on email and on Twitter um, uh, with questions, comments, concerns, queries. Um, one from Amy, who I think is over in the US. Uh, saying uh, how much she enjoyed Eleanor's um, contribution during the Australian Open. I'd love to hear more from her or have her in the mix for future slam pods. Uh, Eleanor is dead keen to come on, um, despite having shared a flat with me for three weeks. She's still somehow <laughs> keen to come on, so um, we will certainly get her involved as and when as and when we can. Um, we're going to start with a question from Matthew, who's been in touch on email. Tennisunfiltered at gmail.com is the email address. Uh, he says, I wanted to ask about players switching passport and what you think about that. There are some high-profile cases involving Kazakhstan, of course, Elena Rybakina, who we're going to talk about a little bit later on after winning a title last week. Um, but there are also many involving Britain. Uh, I presume the reason Cam Norrie, Oliver Crawford, Jan Choinsky, Ali Ash Badene wanted to represent Britain is down to LTA funding and furthering their career. However, what does British tennis get from this? Is, the, is it the hope that these players will make a big splash at major tournaments and team events and this will create a ripple effect that inspires younger players? Also, is the re answer the same reason Kazakhstan does it? Uh, Calvin, I'm going to ask you about Britain because it seems obvious. Uh, George, I know you've got contacts in Kazakhstan, so you might be able to speak to that. Yeah, I think it's... I mean, I do think with with Britain, I don't know if it's the case now, but historically it was, you know, that they could just use it as another player that they've got in the, the top 200 and that does still seem to hold some sway with, I don't know, with the media, in inverted commas, or with the LTA. They like saying we've got X amount of players in the top 250, and it's not easy to get there. So even if it's just one more, they can go, well, we've got one more in there. And they don't, you know, I think it, there was one last, last year where somebody from the LTA had raved about how we're developing more clay court players because look how many players we've got in the first round of the French Open and one of them was Jan Choinsky who, you know, for all of Jan's plus points he wasn't brought up in the LTA system um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of what, what the countries get from it I, I think it's, it, it's just they get more praise they, they, they praise themselves on the back of it I think, that's where it comes from 
Do, have you got? Do you have a problem with it though? When you see, I mean, you know, guys, so, some of whom have got quite strong, legitimate connections to Britain, and some of whom, had, some might say, haven't. I mean, does that does it frustrate you when you know they're seen to come over and maybe take the place of players who've lived here all their lives and tried to work their way up? I mean, I don't know if it takes the place of players. That's the thing. I mean, I think if I, I in terms of funding the way it is now. I don't think the LTA fill their funding allocation. And in terms of wildcards, Wimbledon wildcards, I, th- I think Wimbledon tend to be a bit tighter on them. I'm not sure they've, Rosetsky aside, I'm not sure they've actually given many out to players who have changed nationality. And that's, I kind of guess, why a lot of them... I mean, the, 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 like, let's be straight about it. The players who are changing nationality are changing... The reason they're doing it is for money. They they see there's more money in it either by funding or by uh, wildcards into major events. And that's nothing against those players. I guess I would do it if you don't have a, a, a big affinity to the country that you're originally coming from. But that is why they've done it. I, I don't think there's any other reason. And that's the only thing that kind of does wind me up, the disingenuousness of saying, I think one of the recent players without naming names said that he was getting goosebumps when he heard the national anthem. And that was, I found, quite a lot of disingenuousness, I would say, on that, because you could have done it at any stage. You know, it's like you could have, I think... Some of these players, both their parents are British. If they wanted to be British, they could just be British. But I don't mm. particularly have a problem with it, to be honest. I, I know most of the guys. I don't know Oliver Crawford, who's just come recently, but no Jan Choinsky and, um, you know, just through being around them. Um, Greg Gozetsky was the first one, obviously. Yeah, I suppose the the point you make, Calvin, about, you know, it's not, we'd all do it, right? And 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 it's not a criticism when we say, well, they're all doing it for money. It's like that. <laughs> you're, you're a professional tennis player. Almost every decision you make is a financial one, right? Yeah, I mean, and it, and it has to be. You know, there are. I was just talking with with a player just ten minutes ago about situations with wild cards for these up and coming. Um, it was a doubles player, and I was talking about a situation for a wild card for these up and coming. Um, tournaments in in the Middle East, in Doha and Dubai, about and somebody's been offered a wild card here with a, a player who I didn't think is very good and I said to them that it's not a player who I coach by the way but um, I said to them, well I think you'd basically be doing it then just for the money because you're not going to win a tennis match in that week and from a rankings point of view it's a, it's, it's a week wasted but at the same time those tournaments play, pay a hell of a lot of money and I would completely understand the reasoning behind doing that, but you know, it's it's where it where it weighs, and a lot, you know, the higher you get up, the less questions you have to ask about that. Although, amazingly, as high as they go, players still will do most things for money. Uh, and George, I mean, um, Matthew has mentioned Kazakhstan as well. There's obviously lots of examples: Rybakina, Bublik, uh, the two that, that spring to mind because I think they're the the two highest ranked. I mean, isn't there a fairly obvious answer to that one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the the transactions typically from Russia to Kazakhstan in that case, whereas Britain's is a lot more. Um, I was going to say diverse there. I don't know if that's necessarily what I want to say. But yeah, yeah, I mean, they, they come, they come, they come from all over. I yeah, suppose, exactly. Whereas it's a bit more kind of straight shooting transaction, really, between Russia and Kazakhstan. Um, I mean, the, the pros are obviously similar. I, I suppose from a Russia perspective a lot of the players who go to Kazakhstan might not have been thinking they're going to have that many shots at playing high up um, Russian tennis, particularly on the women's side. I'm thinking Mm. here, you know, there's a pretty strong field there. Um, Obviously, Rebakan is a very, very good player, but at the time she'll have made the switch, there would have been quite a strong body of players in front of her. So, you know, there's there's also that kind of top-level competition side, I think, that probably is a factor. Um, It's very well-funded country in terms of tennis very backed by a billionaire who is hugely interested in the sport and you know when Bulat Utemuratov to name him specifically I didn't want to try and murder that name so I'm glad you <laughs> glad you went in there James I knew it was Bulat and I didn't want to attempt the next bit um and you know it, it's quite funny I mean 
I had experience of this when uh, Britain were playing Kazakhstan in the Fed Cup. Uh, I think they also played them in the Davis Cup during my time as well, which is quite funny. They're probably the the, the match I saw most between Britain, weirdly. <laughs> um, but they, you know, that one was at home at the Copper Box, and they flew over an entire contingency of um, kind of journalists and basically uh, supporters and they were holding up the national flag at the back of the press room and having a great time and they went on a tour of Wimbledon it was, it was quite nice but they you know there's a lot of money and interest and they really want tennis to be such a big sport there they've put a lot of money in um, yeah and I, to be honest uh, as someone who's not that bothered about nationality broadly for the player's perspective I kind of get it go get a paycheck go play some top tier tennis why not hmm. um, I've actually I, I can't remember the actual figures but I've seen the financial package off the record what the what the um, Kazakh players get from the governing body stroke the, the gentleman who you just referred to and it is hmm. phenomenal it's, it's a hell of a <laughs> lot of money that you know it, it would turn anyone's head um, but it's interesting how they they go for the Russians, like all that. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who's gone from any other country. You know, not none of the other Soviet countries around there. It's always tends to be the Russians. What I find interesting actually is that um, the latest one is just Shevchenko, who's gone. Uh, he is married to Potapova, um, mm. who was last year obviously accused of being very very pro Russia, which I always thought was a little bit misread from the the critics when everybody was flying in wanting to wanting to jump on any sort of ukraine um mm. anti-ukraine thing which you know she was just i think it was, as i remember she was just wearing a a, a football top of the low of a local moscow team spartak moscow seen, i believe yeah and mm. it was seen as being very pro putin which i always thought was a wasn't really the case but i think that kind of proves it now that her, her husband has changed nationality mm. and it wouldn't surprise me if she does as well yeah, I had to say I didn't realize that he had um, he'd moved over. That's very recent, I think. Like in the yeah, last it's this month, year. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's just at the start of this year. Oh, I see. Um, okay. Well, there you go, Matthew. I hope that answers your question in part. I mean, for 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 my kind of understanding of it or, or experience of it, like yes, it, like why we we why wouldn't we welcome players who have a link to Britain, want to play, you know, with the British flag next to their name. You know, Cam Norrie, people not even that long ago would have said, oh, well, he's not really that British, is he? You know, but then he gets to the Wimbledon semi-final and no one gives a damn anymore. Like, and that's good for tennis in this country, right, George? It'd be uh, remiss to have this conversation without mentioning, of course, the LTA's overtures to try and get Novak back in the day. <laughs> yes, um, indeed. That, now, that would have been a hell of a story. There's a, yeah. I've, I've when heard, he was about 17, is that right? Yeah, he's quite young, certainly. And um, our, there's a joke in the press room that if Djokovic was British, he'd have only won six slams because he <laughs> got to him so much. But, which, <laughs> I think it's quite amusing. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. How history might have been different, but... <laughs> I think from I've heard Novak talk about it, and I think I don't think he was ever that close. Really. No, I, I don't think, think he was, was that keen. And yeah. when you think about how like how proud a Serbian he is, like it it would have been pretty um pretty out of character, I think. Um, I've got one more question that I want to do before we kind of move on to some of the newsier stuff. Um, it's from Nikos, who people will know the name because he's often in touch and always puts a lot of thought and time into his questions. So I'm keen to get this one over. Um, I just wanted to say, I put in a good word for Sabalenka, saying that really she had the most impressive 2023 of the women first slam consistency, and now I've caught up on the AO episodes of your pod. It seems like people are agreeing now. Anyway, my question is whether you can remember anyone doing such a good job of improving on their weaknesses, at least so quickly. She went from hitting 20 double faults a match at the AO two years ago to winning the next two editions and hitting zero double faults nor getting broken in the final this year. Regardless of who her opponent was, that's incredible improvement resilience. And it's too early to definitively say, but her mental fortitude seems to be improving a lot as well after collapses kind of being the storyline for her last year. I know other top players have turned things around quickly when returning from injury, but I can't remember anyone else going from seeming so close yet so far to any big stage successes to becoming number one and winning slams for the first time she has. I agree with James that she's not the brightest, but she did have some really mature comments about no one said winning a slam was easy and dealing with hard defeats. So the way she's been so good at working on herself is an underrated storyline in tennis. I am. Oh, um, good question that Nikos. I mean, uh, 
can we remember any players who've taken such an obvious weakness and, and almost eradicated it from, from their game? Do you want to go, Kelman? I, I was going to say... Uh, yeah, I mean, probably... what I was going to say was that I, I don't disagree with Nikos, and I think it's it's been... She has made quite a big improvement in it, but I'm not sure it was... I think that was more a glitch that she was going through when she was serving a load of double faults the year before. I don't think it was necessarily something that, like she went through her whole career serving 20 double faults a match. I think it, mm. it was a case that for a, for a short period of time, she just lost all faith and all confidence in it and suddenly stopped doing it. In fairness, and this might be a first here that we will give some praise to Alex Verev, he's kind of done the same because he was in a position where his second serve was just an absolute liability. But I would say he's done more because throughout his whole career, his second serve was a liability. And I'm not saying it's a strength now, but he's not at the stage anymore where you think whenever he misses a first serve, there's a at least a 50% chance he's double faulted. I was going to say, there's been other players I can think of, actually even amongst the big big three, where there were perceived weaknesses that you would say were turned around. I mean, the obvious one was Djokovic's serve. I mean, that was for a while quite a big talking point in media. And again, you know, this probably does touch slightly on the question of perception versus reality, like how bad actually was it? But if you look at the Djokovic serve in the first few years of his career compared to what it has been in the last two years, I think that has been a seriously big trajectory and quite a big change in stroke as well. The Nadal backhand for a while was kind of perceived as a little bit weaker in that they just kind of thought his forehand was so good. But actually, I think that perception changed. I actually don't think his backhand was ever that bad, but it is interesting how that became viewed as more of a strength later on in his career than it perhaps was early on. And maybe even you might say the Federer backhand to a degree. That, isn't that the one that everyone always talks about, the Federer backhand, right? That, that hitting it, again, it, was, it was it was that was just a nonsense. <laughs> he just started hitting it. And I know from people who was around it on there that Lubacic basically said no chip no chip returns. Like mm. you're gonna start hitting returns. And it's not like it's not like Federer's drive backhand got better than his drive backhand was previously. He just wasn't hitting many drive backhands and then started hitting. I think somebody told him, look, if you keep slicing backhand, you might lose if you hit more drive backhands. But if you keep slicing, you're definitely going to lose. So let's mm. throw caution to the wind. Let's hit some backhands. That's, that, that was undeniable because he's, he's, he's basically, he has a losing career record to Nadal, which is quite somewhat because they've played a lot on clay. Um, way more than any other surface, I think. But also, after he'd started doing that, I think he only lost to Nadal on clay. Um, I don't think he lost any more matches to Nadal on clay after about 2015, I think, was was where it started turning. It might be a good question to ask listeners, to be fair, James, because I'm struggling to think of a shot I can think of where I thought, that is their weakest shot that's then become like, the strongest Hmm. And, and been that. Oh, there's none that like, you don't do that. No, there's of, no. There's no example of that becoming the strongest. So that's probably too strong. But there's, I can't think of many where the shot has been so bad it's been abominable to becoming like quite a sturdy weapon right at the top of the game. Hmm. Yeah, I'm struggling, struggling to think. I, I think that um, there's very second serve. To be honest, like hmm. I, I don't like criticizing him, but you know, I remember when he look when he played. You played Murray once on the American hardcourt season, and then it might have been the same year that he made the final of the US Open. And you genuinely thought, like, if if he doesn't make first, especially when it came to like serving for matches and things, you genuinely thought if he doesn't make if he doesn't make a first serve here, there's there's a better than fifty percent chance that he's going to hit a double fault. Is that a technical or a mental adaptation? There, do you think, Calvin? Like what? How much do we say the shots? I think it's a bit of both, versus... and also a tactical one as well, James. I think he's uh, George. Sorry, I think he's. It, it, it is a mental thing, although for all his faults, as we've said, and there are many on the court and off the court, he does have this mental resilience that and self belief that I don't know if he ever thought that his second serve was rubbish, um, but. I think from a t- he's made a couple of different technical thing changes, but I think it's more now that he doesn't. He, I think it's like it's a case now he goes for it a bit more. I don't think it's mm. like he's not just trying to get it in, which has to be a tactical thing. It's it's like right, I'm I'm going to attack my second serve 
and because of that 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 turns into a tactic none of these things are independent from each other if that that ta- that tactical yeah. thing of i'm going to go after it more means that the racket head speed goes up which makes it which makes it safer and i was just about to say at that point that there's probably a broader existential debate about how much a player's technical shot ever really improves from the time they're kind of in their 20s as a tennis player to when they're 30s it's as much about that attitude and mental belief of taking it on and playing it in the right way, I, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I, I think I think technically, at once you get to a certain age, like 20, 22 maybe, 22, 23, you are what you are from a technical point of view. And I don't think tennis is such a sport, and I've said this before, I don't think that you necessarily get the opportunity then from that stage to make significant technical changes you can adapt you can make little sort of add little bits and shave little things off and that kind of thing but you're never doing something like changing a service action or changing a grip or something like that and that actually harks back to one of the points i've remembered you making quite strongly calvin with players like Auger Aliassime and Goff who are springing to mind that they actually had quite a rare opportunity quite young yeah. in their careers to have that big breakout to kind of change it which normally you wouldn't get and it felt quite wasted i suppose in many ways i I think what also what i do think is apparent to me but and a lot of people don't acknowledge this is if you a lot of people like to think that technical changes are made and that kind of thing so if you watch novak Djokovic in say 2008 and you watch him now the shots are a lot different they look a lot different but i think that is just because of the the environment of the game in coaching we'd call it we call it like perception action and constraint led coaching and that kind of thing. But the game basically coaches you. So your shots change over time unconsciously to, to a different shape to, to cope with the extremities of the game and what you have to do. It's not necessarily that they've ever sat down and gone, right, this is how I'm now hitting my forehand. And I think if you watched in each of those occasions, I think if, if you, like I say, if you watch it from 2007 to now, you'd notice such a huge difference. But I think if you if you just watched it in one-year increments, I don't think you'd ever be able to pinpoint where that change happened. It just over, over mm. that time, it's gradually just changed and changed and changed a bit more. But I don't think that is because they've sat down and gone, right, we're remodelling the forehand here. We're remodelling the serve. That'd be a great um, kind of 90-second clip wouldn't it someone could just like do every year someone hitting that same shot and you see it kind of i think it's difficult when when people say to me like you know like i want to work on my forehand and i'll always go which forehand and they'll go (laughs) a forehand and there's like there's about 400 of them depending on the the speed that it's coming in the speed you want to hit it where you are on the court where your opponent is what the tactical implications are what you're trying to do there is no forehand Maybe easiest for the serve then if you do T serve or whatever. Yes, yeah, sir. But I think the serve, the serve probably changes the least because it's it it's enti- the serve is the only shot that is entirely in your control. Like mm. not it, it's not dictated by your opponent at all. It's entirely up to you. It's the only it's the only shot that that you that you hit every single rally that you're serve every single point that you're serving. Right. Well, I hope that's um, sparked some thoughts. And yeah, if you if you've got uh, an idea, an answer for Nikos's question, um, then <clears throat> let us know on email tennisunfiltered at gmail dot com or on Twitter. Um, I'll put a tweet up that you can. Remember. I'll just say just one more. I, mean, I think on the serve, I'm trying. I was just thinking there about players, decent players whose service actions I've made significant changes to over the t- over the years. That are decent players. And a lot of the time, you know, you'll spend... I remember one player, we spent a lot of time working on it, and it was mainly... There's mainly some tactical and technical implications. I was a bit bothered that his, his back... He was bending his back a bit too much. There was a bit too much going on. So but we'd make these changes. We had a little bit of time without a tournament. We had maybe six weeks without anything. So we did it then. And I thought that it would also reap some rewards in terms of quality of serve. The stats showed it was pretty much the same. <laughs> and you know, it was it was obviously it was quite a different action, but I think you get that a lot. You know, it's difficult to just like gain a lot of points, but that's not to say you can't make changes. Like, and I know, like, there's little things that we've. I mean, like, for example, last summer with one of my players, it wasn't technical changes per se, but I pushed 
to get some of the fundamentals of what I think is a good serve back in, if you know what I mean. I think he'd like that player had got, I mean, I'm not going to say who it is. I only coached two, but like, <laughs> like, so you can guess, I'm not going to say which one it is. But we worked to get some of the, the sort of technical fundamentals back in like bringing the hip into it using both legs not just not just not just driving up from one leg try and get both legs involved and we may in in essence by by the end of the year we did that in the summer and by the end of the year we were getting about an extra four percent um in terms of productivity out of it which seems not a lot but it also is mm-hmm. you know it's like if, if you're making four percent more first serves say you're going from 60 to 64 and you're going from 75% to 79% won and 50 to 54, they're, they're the differences between winning a tennis match. Hmm. But they weren't technical uh, changes. They were just things, look, we need to do these things that everyone needs to do more. Your description of, is this new serve from Nadal, the thing that's going to really trouble <laughs> Djokovic on hard courts? They just paced him like one, three and one. Like, well, the, the only one I can actually remember, from, the biggest one, sorry, I can actually remember, was when the year after Agassi won Wimbledon. Agassi won Wimbledon in 92. And then in 93, he'd injured his wrist, but he was desperate to defend the title. So he came back that year and did a half service motion. Um, and I think he made the quarters. He lost to Sampras in the quarters, but... If you want to go, if anyone wants to go and sit, look at it, look at Agassi's serve in general, look at his 92, 93 Wimbledon serve. And it, it's it's a full-on, like, he basically just takes the racket up above his head. He's, it's, a, it's a complete half action. But I don't think you'd ever get something like that happen anymore. You, you do have big shot changes forced by injury, don't you? That's, I mean, that's, that's a slightly different question to Nico's, what he's asking there. But that, that well, is Del probably Potter, where you get it more notable. And team, yeah. to a degree, I suppose. Team, yeah. And, yeah, team, um, teams had to make massive changes, right? Yeah, teams made, but, but I mean, it's worse. It's not got any better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And there's obviously, there's the one as well that, there was, I don't know if he's still going with this, but Corentin Motet was suggesting that he might just do underarm serves. From now on. Oh, really? And uh, hasn't he also been playing with a one-handed backhand for like? Yeah, a slicing year? it. He's just been slicing his backhand. Yeah, but he was suggesting that he may just he may be the first player to just hit underarm serves. That is so quarantine Rutet. All of those, <laughs> is, all yeah. of those statements is just so him. He's the guy who. It was him, right? That uh, Evo had Evo, a massive yeah. fallout in Barcelona. Yeah. I think. A few times, I think. I don't think it was just one match. I think there were a couple. Where I mean, they really are probably off. two blokes who could start a, a fight in an empty <laughs> room. There's, there's but... two of the, There's two friends. There's Moutet and there's um, Lestien, who might be the two biggest dickheads on tour. Like I know. What Les... <laughs> so Lestien was one. I don't. I'm not going to put this all on him, but. Now, I don't know whether you remember when Lucas Pui put that, he did that interview, quite a touching interview about a year ago when he said he, he, he got quite in, badly into depression. And he said it was mm. at a it was at a futures tour, it was at a challenger tournament in England on the grass um, the year before that was his lowest ever point. Now that match actually, was that, the only one he played on the grass was Ilkley and he played against Luke and Aiden, And he was losing, doing his nutting because... Um, Lestien was just being a complete fool, and I think that that's what that was. That's what he said was his lowest point, and he said to <laughs> he said to Luke at the end, like the, Lestien and Luke's partner. Again, I'm not going to say who it is because I do know him and I'm quite friendly with him. I'd got into a, a row for nothing in the middle of the match, and those two were just at each other's throats. And then um, Pui said at the end of the match to Luke, "I don't know who deserves a punch more, more my partner or your partner." <laughs> And then, and then he came out like about a year later and said, "Like my lowest ever point was playing a doubles match at Ilkley, <laughs> a, 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 a British challenger on the grass, and it had to be that match." So, yeah, those two, Lestienne um, and Mutet, are right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, let's uh, let's move on to Abu Dhabi, shall we? Um, after all that, we obviously um, picked up a couple of the storylines last week because we were recording a little bit later, but we were not recording late enough to register that Elena Rybakina uh, won the title, her second title of the year already, um, already matching her best year in terms of titles won, and it is but February. Um, she beat Daria Kasatkina 1-4 in the final. Uh, she beat Collins, Bookser and Samsonova on the way. This Middle Eastern swing, the, the WTA feels always very good. Um, mm. They've obviously got two 1,000 events back-to-back and pretty much everyone tends to go, although I know Irina Sabalenka isn't in uh, Doha this this weekend, this week, I should say. But um, that's not the, maybe the strongest list of names to beat for a 500-level title, but... I mean, it's good for Elena Rubakina just to be turning up and keep winning winning events that we think she should be winning anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, I think her Australian Open was obviously very, very disappointing, really. Um, I think we said on our pre-draw podcast, James, that if she, if she didn't lose the first round, which was a banana skin against Carolina Pliskova, then really there was no excuse for her not to reach the semifinals. Um and obviously, was it second, third round? I can't remember which one it second was. Second round, the, second the, round. the longest ever tie break in the third set, yeah. 22-20. And, and look, the, that was clearly an off day and she stuck in fairly well to make it that close in some ways. So, you know, I know Calvin Oates saying it was a close one, but, you know, you can't say she wasn't sticking in there and making a bit of a match of it, even if she was playing an absolute stinker. So I suppose from a mentality perspective, she was trying to hang in there, but it was just frustrating she didn't get that win there. And I think there's been a few too many slams like that for her. Some kind of out of her control. She was ill or wasn't she at the French Open last she, year, which was yeah. quite fit. I, um, I think that I think there's probably a little bit more I mean, she's kind of talked about it. She she she's got like a condition with a lot of allergies involved and, yeah. and various other things. And I, I think she had glandular fever at one point as well and that that can have quite long term effect and I think basically she's kind of going up and down with yeah. that to be honest yeah. and that's and that's it, part of the issue yeah and I think that it's a shame isn't it because when she's on I mean she absolutely tonked Sabalinka earlier this year in her other um, yeah in Brisbane final. what was it uh, love and three or something yeah. ridiculous uh, she you know she's arguably got as high a level as either the issue for her is just making sure at these big events it doesn't go wrong in the first kind of four rounds um but yeah look it's obviously a good week for her. She'll win multiple titles this year, but we'll be judging her on how she does at slams because she's that level. You know, she's a top four player. Really, for me, she, I think she's ahead of Goff still. Like I know Goff won the US Open last year, but I think Rubikina's level is higher than Goff's when she's playing at her best, um, primarily due to the issues with the Goff forehand. Um, so, I, you know, we'll, we'll be looking at her year and thinking, has she made three semi-finals has she won a slam has she reached a couple of finals and, and that's where she'll be judged rather than that this sort of event being totally honest hmm. do, do you think she's a valuable addition calvin to this this kind of top you know top group of players she, she she's quite similar to sabalenka in the way she plays and she's quite different to sabalenka in in how she kind of projects herself i suppose i mean it, it would be useful to have her around the last stage of slams more often wouldn't it yeah, for sure. Um, I I think she's an excellent player in in her best. Um, I mean, I always say you don't judge players at their highest level. You you judge them at their middle and low level. But I don't think her middle and low levels are terrible. But she mm. just drops a little bit too much from her best level. Um, but I think she's she's an excellent player. I agree with George that her, her top level, I think, is... You could even argue her top level is the best of the lot because she beats the other two whenever she plays them. Mm. Um, and and she when she plays well, 
she doesn't lose to the other two. Mm. Um, so I, I think you know you could even argue she, her top level is the best of the lot. I I I don't I, I'm not based this on anything, so I don't know. Um, Rybakina, is that how we say it now? Rybakina, Rybakina, exactly. all that well. But um, she always comes across like when I've seen her at the tournament, she comes across as just a really nice girl. Mm. Um, and she's of all the female players, she seems to have the smallest entourage. She generally <laughs> just eats around the restaurant with all the other players, just hangs around the the warm up area and chats to anybody. Whereas that can't be said of all the players. Um, male and female, I think it should be said. Um, mm. But certainly the other top female players. I mean, Goff tends to be around there quite a lot. She seems a really nice girl. The others, I think Schwantek more keeps herself to herself a little bit. Um, but for that reason, I, I'm just, she might not be, but she always comes across as a really nice girl. Mm. And I, I always hope that she does well on that basis. Um, mm. She always seems really happy and jolly, which a couple of times I've been around and she seems like really happy and jolly. And then I've seen that she's pulled out of a tournament, which has always surprised me <laughs> a little bit. Well, it's funnily know. enough, I, my only kind of, not only, but I bumped into her at Eastbourne. Uh, I think it was last summer and we were both lost around the back of the uh, kind of venue, um, just trying to find the restaurant through the back entrance. And I said, oh, I didn't even really register who it was. I just saw that she was also looking lost. And I was like, are, we, are you trying to find the restaurant? She's like, yes, I don't know where it is. And then I clocked who she was. And I said, oh, well, you know, good luck this week. How are you feeling? She's like, oh, yeah, you know. And then she pulled out like 30 minutes later. Um, <laughs> so I was like, okay. Robbed you of a scoop. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is quite funny. But uh, yeah, she does She does seem nice. I mean, the 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 sort of concern, if there is a concern... Um, is, you know, and people have talked about it, is the relationship with the coach. Like, they often have quite... And I'm all for, like, honest and candid and, um, you know, those conversations on court between coach and player. But, like, her and Vukov do seem to have very, very heated conversations on court and it often seems to be quite one way. I'll say this. I, I, I agree with you on that, James, but I've never seen anything to suggest that that's the case off the court. And, mm. the, the, you know, when I've seen that kind of relationship before and where it would raise concerns is if they don't seem to have any relationship at all off the court. Uh, but mm. whenever I've seen them together off the court, it's all with the other people, you know, the, usually maybe a fitness trainer or a physio there. They just seem to be having a laugh the whole time. So I, mm. I don't know whether it um, – now – Obviously, that's a really small sample size that I'm working off there. But sure. I don't know whether it's one of those things where they've both decided that to maximize what we can get on court, the intensity has to be high in that. And it might mm. cross a, it might sort of be close to the line sometimes. And, you know, it, it, it needs a bit of fire. And I don't know. But in, like I say, from, my, from what I've witnessed, there's nothing that would concern me off the court to suggest mm. that it's a problem. Have you ever like found yourself in a situation like that with a player when you, you have had to dish it out a bit on court and then you both walk off and, you know, afterwards you're like, well, that was okay. Wasn't it? You know, that, that, that's just sort of what we, what we do sometimes. Um, I think it's, it's in each situation. I mean, as I get, as I've gotten older, I, I, I try to sort of match the mood of what the match requires. I think mm. that's something I've started trying to do a bit more now. It's like I'm not going to get get overly pumped up all the time if I feel that you know we need a. Uh, a I always, I mean, I think a way to talk about it, and it's the same with a player. But the intensity you want to get is kind of a rolling boil, where the temp is nothing's over boiling and nothing's just not boiling at all. It's just lukewarm. You want a nice rolling, simmering boil is, is where mm. is the best temperature to 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 play at to compete at, and I think that that's the best to coach at as well. Um, I think that, you know, that there's been times where I wouldn't say I've lost my head like that. There's been times where I've said to players, look, you know, we're running out of time here. You, you're going to need something. We need mm. something here. And then there's been times I haven't got the right response, um, you know, and it's uh, the response and, I, and you've known then this is not turning around. Mm. Or there's times I wouldn't say that I'd, I've ever been overly critical. I've been in, I've been in arguments with players on it, I don't think I've ever come and gone 
straight away with me criticizing them but i don't know maybe certainly not recently because I've, I've made an effort not to but when you're younger and a bit inexperienced you kind of have an idea of what what you're supposed to do as a coach at the side of it and then you realize what is actually useful and what actually isn't mm. but there's times when i've tried to fire it up a bit more where you think the energy is to like say that you haven't got the rolling boil so you need to fire it up and bring some more energy yourself and there's times where i said <laughs> US Open, actually, Australian Open, actually. I've not actually spoke with Henry about this because I completely forgot until now, but there was one instance where I thought that they were getting a bit fired up after every point, and I thought that this could go the other way. So I've sort of gone like, you know, I've just said after a point, I've gone like, calm down. And I think Henry thought that that was something. I was telling him to he wasn't getting up on his serve or something. And, and I'm like, <laughs> you can't. It's a weird one now with the coaching on court because you can – you can talk, but you can't. Like they can't come and just have a conversation with you. So the whole thing just has to be you shouting from the side to them. Mm. Um, Although cause, it, cause it seems like players now do just go over and have like a full blown conversation sometimes if they want to, and it doesn't get really get policed. Yeah, I think you can do that more when there's a big crowd there and like when you're a big mm. name and the you know that kind of thing. But on the doubles court, like last week at the Challenger, <laughs> there's me and nobody else watching then I think it's um, <laughs> it's more of a, it's more difficult, yeah. Hmm. Um, let's move on to Naomi Osaka, who we were going to talk about last week and then ended up not. And actually, there's kind of been more development on that and it's given us more, even more to talk about. So she was playing in Abu Dhabi last week and she lost to uh, Daniel Collins, 7-5-6-love and said something quite interesting afterwards, which George flagged to me and I thought we'd be good to talk about. She says, I say some pretty harsh words about myself. I know the word, but if I say it, it sounds real, really bad. I felt like a failure, but I don't want to be too harsh. Um, and I, I went back and listened to the press conference because it, it, it smelt like the exact kind of quote where on paper it looks so different. And, and it kind of did. And she was actually quite positive, I think, and, and sort of almost bullish in, in that press conference. Um, she then came over to Doha in Qatar and promptly played a really good match against Caroline Garcia that I watched the first set of um, in my post-Super Bowl hungover state this afternoon on the sofa. <laughs> and it was really good. I mean, the, the, the level was high. Like, Caroline Garcia is so good to watch when she's just belting it. And she was doing that thing where she stands eight feet inside the baseline on second serve. And, and Osaka came through at 7-5, um, And she said some interesting things after that, as well as she, as she often does these days. She said, I took a little dip after Abu Dhabi. But I had a talk with my team. I think the most important thing is just to try as hard as I can. Hopefully the results will come. I know there's going to be a lot of tough matches and probably a lot of scrappy ones, but I just have to learn how to match rhythm again and know that there's no such thing as failure. You have to just keep getting back up. George, that is such an incredibly refreshing thing to hear Naomi Osaka say, isn't it? Yeah, I think this kind of speaks volumes of why it's good to have her back on the tour because she is interesting. She is, while in you know, introverted typically, if you listen beyond the kind of awkwardness in many ways of that kind of interaction, she does think very deeply. She speaks some quite interesting stuff. And I think, you know, obviously she's a huge star. People know who she is. They take interest. It pops up. It gets people talking. And, you know, the way she actually at the French Open a few years ago brought up a lot of the mental health issues she was having has really drawn a lot of people to her, I think, in terms of kind of speaking about that quite openly. And I think we're in a really interesting stage of the Osaka career now, obviously coming back from pregnancy, she seems a lot more relaxed in some ways, um, but still kind of, it does feel like there is that spark in there and she does really want it. And a, a little that, that was worrying before, wasn't it? You know, before she kind of went off to be um, become a mum, it felt like, oh God, we're losing someone here who could be one of the game's greats and we're losing her because it's got too much and she doesn't really have a desire for the sport and she doesn't like it and she's tired of everything about it. Whereas actually that little bit of potential life grounding and putting it more in the context of what it is, but still really wanting it, feels like she's in quite a good starting place, I would say. You know, it's easy to get carried away at this stage because she's not winning lots of matches for us to say... Yeah, Saka's definitely back. But I would be quite pleased with the kind of base camp she's at, like a couple of months into this comeback, where she seems up for it. 
there is still that knot in her that's like, I am a failure. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I know she's trying to like turn it into a positive, but that can drive some of the best players in the world. You know, failure almost not being an option. I think this is positive, And I think we will be talking about her, obviously, a lot this year. And it won't just be about the tennis. It'll be about things she's saying. And I think that's only good news for us and for anyone else associated with the sport. So, I, yeah, I'm looking forward to her. Hopefully, I'm in a good week this week. And I've, just started, of course, I've just started reading Ben Rothenberg's um, book, which he was kind enough to give me a copy of in oh, Australia. Nice. Um, and it's already very interesting, actually. Just I didn't know, uh, I knew a little bit about her parents, but there's a kind of load of fascinating stories um, to tell there. Calvin, I know, I know you always say we want Naomi Osaka to be playing tennis, but I'm, I'm interested in that kind of resilience that she seems to be courting. I mean, that, that's a really important quality for, for a pl- tennis player at any level, right? hundred percent. It's you could argue it's the most important thing that, or, mm. or it's equally as important as talent and ability. Like I've seen people say before that it's more important than those things. I don't think it is. You can't do. You can't. You won't achieve without both of those things. Um, I've never known anybody who's achieved without both of those things. So, mm. um, but I think she already had that. I mean, you don't win four slams without without it. Her problem is she just thinks she struggled with how much she wants to play before. Um, but I watched her play today. She played excellently. I will say that she's slightly ahead of schedule from where I'd expect her to be after such a long time out. Um, and she seems focused on um, on coming back and being as good as she can possibly be. And there's no better sign in tennis than what, you know, she won and, and there's no better sign in tennis than Naomi Osaka when she's happy. And she seemed really happy that she'd won that match. What do we compare the levels she was at before going out? More kind of winning the slams level versus the kind of big players we've got at the top now. Like, how close do we think that is, or how much higher was Osaka then, or lower? I, I think that Osaka at her best is a much better player than Sabalenka. I think she's more rounded, isn't she? I think she's yeah. she's she's more kind of. Complete. I think she hits the ball bigger as well. I mean, Sabalenka hits the ball huge, but I think oh. Osaka hits the ball slightly bigger, if anything. I always remember that absolute humdinger of a fourth round between the two of them in the first Osaka slam win that was really painted as this could be the rivalry of the next kind of 10 years. Um, we've, we've had to wait a little while for maybe <laughs> to blossom, but I think the thought of a more mature, focused Sabalenka who's shown great consistency at slams and the idea of a refreshed Osaka who we know is capable of really on hard courts, particularly winning these slams is, is, is quite a tasty prospect, really. So mm. hopefully it's not a false dawn because we've had a few of those. But... <laughs> <laughs> and and also, like, you know, I, I know I often say this, you know, <clears throat> styles make fights, but, you know, the Sabalenka back in a uh, Australian Open final was not a match we thought was going to be a thriller, and it was. And I, I would usually say, mm, Asaka Sabalenka, like, you know, 50% of the time, one of them's going to be off and the other 50% of the time, like the what the other one's going to overpower one. But I can now see that sort of match being good to watch. And and that that's, I think, uh, a huge um, credit to, to both of them in terms of what they've done with their games and, and more, more likely, I think, what they've done with their, their heads. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Um, let's move on to another um, female Grand Slam winner, Emirata Kanu, uh, who was in action today. Uh, one and done in uh, Doha, and she is done in the Middle East, I'm told. She's not going to play Dubai. She lost six love. 7-6 to Angelina Kalanina. Only 23 minutes that first set. 48 unforced errors in total uh, from Emma Raducanu. It was a pretty one-sided. She did um, scrap back. Uh, she saved two match points at 6-5 down in the second set. Forced a tie-break, but um, I think the scoreline pretty much sums up the match pretty well. Um, she said afterwards that the conditions were tough, that she didn't adapt well to them. Um, she said that she needs to practice more outdoors. Uh, I think and I can't believe I'm quite saying this, there was a huge rainstorm in Doha for a couple of days leading up to the tournament. So I don't think there was a huge amount of outdoor practice available, which might explain that. But um, yeah, Calvin, I know some of those comments frustrated you. Yeah, I mean, it's funny actually you say that, the rainstorm, because Luke is in Bahrain and the doubles has been knocked back a full day because of the rain that they've had as well. So oh, really? um, uh, yeah, I think it must just not be a great, great weather in the area. Um, yeah, again, I... No doubt whatsoever that these will be called baseless claims um, from somebody, but um, I, I don't really get what the the rationale is that that she needs to practice more outdoors because she would have been practicing outdoors, I assume, from before Christmas, probably mm. in the Middle East, or unless she went to Australia earlier, or maybe to America. So she was in the UK, basically. Um... She was, yeah, because she was at preseason when I was there. Yeah, so um... she did, she was indoors until. Pretty much she got to Oz, which I'm trying to remember exactly. Did she played New Zealand, did she played Auckland. Yes, play, sorry. Brisbane. Um, did she play Brisbane or? This is a great question, and it. it I mean, it with everything that's happened, over the, yeah, yeah, yeah. She um, was outdoors. Out. She, yeah, she played Auckland. Of course, she did. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then would have practiced those. Would have Australia outdoors. Went well, straight. Well, you to say the... you say that, Calvin, but like well, actually, with the num- with the way the courts were in Australia, like. At least half her practice sessions were indoors at the Australian Open. Well, it right, but yeah, but you're still outdoors at, at half of them as well. So it's not yeah, like yeah. Yeah. you know you're, you're practicing outdoors, um, and it would have been on that basis. It would have been as much outdoor practice as anyone else um, yeah, yeah. at the same time. Um, and then I think she went straight to Dubai from Australia. I think she Which came home for a bit, but then, yeah. Right, I mean, okay, then but then, yeah. Spent some time hitting so, so, Dubai. What and... I'm saying is she, she, she had a hell of a lot of outdoor tennis. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's what I found a strange comment. Yeah, it can be frustrating, but, you know, it's like if it's raining, there's not a lot you can do. Everyone else is mm. practicing indoors there, but I didn't see the it, match. Um, yeah. So I don't know, I, but... It, is it perhaps indicative of, like just her lack of experience that like, you know, she went out, it was, an, she said it was like one of the first day matches she's played in ages, which I'm sure is true. She, she so often ends up on the night session, but you know, went out, it was 11 o'clock in the morning or oh, two, 2 PM. I think local time. Um, it was blustery. It was like grandstand one, a small court, you know, it was dappled shade, like tricky conditions. And, and let's say so Angelina Kalanina is a good player and also a very experienced player. And, I think to an extent, Emiratikani still isn't a very experienced player, and you know maybe didn't really adapt to the conditions in the way that Kalanina probably did. I mean, look, I, I saw the last four or five points in the tiebreak. That court was a mess, to be fair, with the, hmm. with the shadow. I, I it really frustrates me when major tournaments have, or you know, main tour events have that kind of situation. I don't know what brought it on, but it's often something silly like. What what the, where, where they have the stands and that kind of thing that can be resolved easily, but a, a proper mm. tournament shouldn't have shade like that um, situation mm. going on. Um, mm. That being said, I don't want to sound an ass to her here, but like what, the players who you normally think would would do well in the 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 wind are players who can think their way through things. And again, mm. we keep hearing about this peerless tennis IQ. So mm. I don't get why she couldn't bring that into action, maybe. But and I'm yeah. kind of half having a go there, but at the same time, I do think she's she's more than a good enough player to be able to cope with a little bit of wind. And it's not, mm. I mean, she's from England, so I'm no doubt she's played quite a bit at Nottingham Tennis Centre over the years, <laughs> which has its own microclimate that is similar to being in a wind farm. 
Um, yeah. So, you know, she, she has the kind of game that you can adapt to that. Just, mm. she didn't play well. She didn't no. play well. Just come and say, just, just say. And, and to well. be fair, Not- she she did also say she was struggling with everything and didn't didn't play a good match or, yeah. or much good tennis. Um, and I, I think also like you know having, I feel like I know how Emma Raducanu speaks and I, I've got to know her a bit over the the years and and it is years now. I mean it's this, this is now the third year since she's won the US Open, which is kind of crazy. Um, and she sometimes isn't great at phrasing exactly what she means. And and she literally, I was quite surprised she went on Sky like three minutes after finishing her match. Yeah. I don't know whether she was just keen to absolutely get out of there. Anyway, George, she's going to now go into another training block and then we've got the US hardcourt swing. I mean, she's she could have a wild card for Dubai next week. Uh, I'm told by um, her agent that she's not going to take one and is going to go into a training block. Is Don't we think she would maybe be better off just, you know, it's probably only one or two more matches. You mm. stay in the Middle East, decent weather, hopefully, and do some training. I mean, is that not bit of an obvious thing to do yeah I I think she needs matches more than anything else right now Um, Mm. I also think she needs points and I I, I just don't really get what delaying a training block between like five days versus you know if she wants to lose first round then is that a big problem? And if it's not five days, it's because you've started winning matches again, which for me would be the most important thing that could happen to her right now. So yeah, yeah I don't really get that decision. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a funny one, isn't it? I, think, I don't think we should necessarily expect her to pull up trees amazingly at the minute, but I think there's a degree to which kind of opposite to what we've just said about Osaka, about feeling like Osaka's in the right sort of place. I'm still not convinced from the way Raducanu is going about things at the minute that she's in the right place to get anywhere close back to that level of being at the US Open. Mm. And even so, and that may feel weird because the results between Raducanu and Osaka are probably pretty comparable this year. But I just sense that one of them is potentially ready for liftoff and suddenly it's not the one who's playing for Britain at the moment. Um, yeah. Indian Wells will be interesting. She's got points there, doesn't she? To um, yeah, yeah. Defend. I mean, that's a big chunk of points. Like, you know, she um, won three matches there. That's and huge. she was good there last year. Um, she so. was, despite it being quite a windy place. Um, right, George. I know you've got to rush off, so I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go. Thank you for your Dismiss contribution me. as always. Um, we're just going to hang around for five more minutes, Calvin, if if I can possibly keep you because I have a question that's been in the inbox for a while. Um, from Dan. So Dan, I'm sorry if you've been wondering why we're not answering your question. Um, but here it is. Um, what's the deal with ITF events held in places like Monastir and Sharm El Sheikh? How do they afford to host tournaments every week of the year without the backing of wealthy federations at the bottom tier of the sport with no TV or gate money? Calvin, I feel like this is this is right in your wheelhouse. Um, well, both of those events that are mentioned, and there's the similar situation in Heraklion in Greece, they're held at hotels. So mm. it's actually, I, I don't know for certain, but I imagine that, I mean, the federations of those places are not without money either. I mean, Tunisia is actually doing all right in tennis terms. You always got Ange mm. um Luke's partner, Skander Mansouri is, is Tunisian, um, you know, so they're not, you know, they're not rivaling Britain and America and that kind of thing, but they, they're doing all right. But I think that the hotels finance some of it because they're making a lot of money out of it. Like particularly yeah, yeah. in particularly Monastia, the the hotel where that tournament is held at is not really close to anywhere else. So the players have to stay there. So if you think there's a men's and a women's on at the same time, that's you've always got thirty two men, thirty two women in Maine. You've got another thirty two and thirty two in um in qualies as well, and you can keep doing it. That's and then some of them bring coaches, parents, that kind of thing. And they're paying. I mean, I think, I think they're usually about I think they're usually about 100 quid a night um, for that kind of thing. So, you know, it kind of yeah. makes sense for them to do it. Yeah. And I suppose the cost of putting those tournaments on, you know, if you've already got the infrastructure, which obviously they do, it's probably pretty low, right? I mean, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. what are the big overheads? There aren't that many. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I've not been to Sham. I've been to Monastir and I've been to Greece. Um, the the Greece one is a hotel, which is also a tennis academy. 
Mm. Um, so, you know, and it, so at the same time, they're getting tournaments for a lot of their players and that, that kind of thing, you know, the Greek Federation will think, well, this is a, this is a probably a, a cheaper way of funding players getting up the rankings and it is sending them all over the world. We'll just mm. keep sticking tournaments on in, in Heraklion in Greece. But, um, but also, I mean, some of the money comes from, and again, this is, again, what I think people don't realize and people like Novak Djokovic don't realize or do realize and just don't care that when we talk about how much money the slams make and the major tournaments make and how much percentage of that money goes to prize money for the players. And they say it's a tiny proportion. It's for the, it's for the food chain of tennis. It's for mm. things like this, that the ITF, that the, the slams make money. Some of that money gets funneled down to the ITF. And then some of that money is, is put into running futures tournaments all over the world, where, t- where the t- which is the entry to, to world ranked tennis for a lot of players, for most players who don't, play who don't have img as their backers who can stick them straight in challenges mm. and that kind of thing so when we talk about oh they're just the, the, the slams are just making their own money they're not it goes for this type of thing and this is where the money needs to go this is where the food chain needs to go and again don't want to get on about saudi arabia again here but if we go with this this premium tour thing that's all going to get cut out mm. you can forget the futures tour will go to pot if that mm. happens mm. because who's going to fund it because they're going yeah. to give all the players want all the money. A related question um, from Danny is in 2022, and you've kind of half answered this, but um, Chinese player Xi Jiawei won 16 titles all in Monastir um, after spending almost every week of the year playing a tournament in Tunisia. How common is it um, at that level of the rankings for a player to enter these back-to-back tournaments for months on end? Seems like a good way to, to cut down on travel expenses. I mean, yeah, I've 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 known players who've I've certainly known players at um at all of those events who've basically rented a an apartment out for six months and they basically <laughs> see it as their job. They, yeah. they're going to work. You know, that that's the way that they look at it. Probably, you know, not necessarily the, the younger players, sometimes the older players as well. They they've they go to work there. This is what you know, I, I get up, this is my this is where I live and I mm. go across the road to work once once a day. I'll train, I play my match, and then I come back and that's it. They're they're not traveling tennis players for that they go and play those tournaments and it, it must that, be nice as well if, if you've you know if you're maybe 30 31 and, and you've lived that life of grind and you know different town or city every week and to actually just be in the same place for a while if you like the place yeah well this is you know we get we talk about the french tournaments as well there's a lot of french guys who are very very good who are still top 200 in the world standard who just don't fancy the the, the life on on traveling so they'll just play the money tournaments around them and they're still professional tennis players just without world rankings because mm. they're going to play the money tournaments where the prize money is very good around france and they don't have to they'll have families a lot of the time they'll have you know wife and two kids and they can drive to the tournaments a lot of the time they're just you know an hour two hours away so that that's how they'll that's how they'll go about it mm. Well, Danny, I hope um, I think you've had to wait two months for me to get that question into a podcast. So I apologise, but we have many of them, and I hope that you're you've still stuck with it. Sorry, Calvin. I think as well, you know, just on that with the hotels as well. I think particularly Sham used to do it, but I don't know if they have them year round now. But the ones in Greece, for example, they've happened upon quite a sensible business model because they have their they they have two runs of tournaments in the year, and they stick them at either end of the season. So they've basically extended their holiday season by. Um, because I don't think they have them in the middles. The hotel's too popular. It's too full in the in the middle of the summer and that kind of thing. So they've basically extended their season by about 13, 14 weeks, either mm. side of it, by doing seven and six um, and that kind I of see. thing. So um, it's actually quite a smart move from them because they've got if, – if the tournaments weren't there, the hotel wouldn't be having anyone in the hotel at that time. Hmm. Very smart. Um well, thanks for your questions as always. It's tennisunfiltered at gmail.com if you've got more to ask us or at Unfiltered Tennis on Twitter, or you can probably just noise me up on any other social media and I'll try to get out to you. Please do leave us a rating, a review, wherever you get your podcast. It makes a huge difference. And, um, tell your mates. That's the biggest thing I can ask you to do. Tell your friends about Tennis Unfiltered. Podcast Network.